Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God and his word, is 2 Samuel chapter 20, verses 1 to 26. So, for those of you who've been with us for this journey through Samuel at Christ the King, I can say, in one sense, this is the end. It's not the end of the book. Of course, there are four chapters that remain. But this is the end of the story of David's kingdom in the books of Samuel. The next chapter takes us back in time to an earlier incident. Second Samuel chapter 20 concludes the account of David's rise, his fall, and restoration. And this is... The restoration. This is the king returning to Jerusalem. This is David's kingdom now. And I think the narrative goal of 2 Samuel chapter 20 is that you're supposed to realize that here at the end. And then you're supposed to feel something like an aching kind of emptiness inside. Because this isn't the kingdom we're waiting for. There were better times once in 2 Samuel. God had chosen David and made him king of his people. It had been to David that God had clearly and explicitly made his promise to establish his kingdom forever. The king in God's promised kingdom would be a son of David. There was a time when we could see something of the character of God's kingdom in David's kingdom. It was once said of David, this is 2 Samuel 8, verse 15, it was once said of David that David reigned over all Israel and David administered justice and equity to all his people, which could be translated, chapter 8, verse 15, as David did justice and righteousness for all his people. At its best, David's kingdom provided a glimpse of the promised kingdom of God. Now God's king is restored. But it's different this time. 2 Samuel 20 is David's kingdom now. And what does it look like? Well, let me give you four headings that will take us through most of the chapter. This is what David's kingdom looks like. It looks like rebellion in verses 1 and 2. It looks like sadness in verse 3. It looks like treachery in verses 4 to 13. And it looks like human cleverness in verses 14 to 22. Those are the pessimistic headings I'll use for this sermon. Rebellion, sadness, treachery, and cleverness, which then will leave us 
verses 23 to 26 at the end as a narrative postscript, but we'll deal with that when we come to it. Let me start then. Verses 1 and 2 of this chapter focus our attention on rebellion in David's kingdom. We haven't even left Gilgal, right? Verse 1 begins, Now there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba. What Sheba's about to say, he says in Gilgal. This is where we were last week, the end of chapter 19, if you have your Bible in front of you to look back at that. After David had crossed back over the Jordan River, coming back towards Jerusalem, he had been joined by some representatives of at least many of the tribes of Israel. But at the end of chapter 19, you remember, there was quarreling. There was quarreling in Gilgal, despite what I suggested was David's best efforts to bring about unity upon his return. Instead, there was division. Division between the southern tribe of Judah, David's tribe, and the northern tribes of Israel. The northern tribes were upset because for some reason they hadn't all been represented when David crossed the Jordan. And so if you look back there at verse 43 of chapter 19, it says, And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, and in David also we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? Only Judah wasn't having it. So chapter 19 ends by saying, But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. Which I guess means that one way or another, Judah ended up winning that particular shouting match. And so in the heat of that conflict emerges someone who was ready to take advantage of it. Our narrator's clear. Sheba was a worthless man. That means there's nothing righteous about what he says here. We're told Sheba is the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. Now, Saul was a Benjaminite. And we know that among the Benjaminites were at least some who felt that David had stolen the kingship from Saul. Remember Shimei, who had cursed David on the way out of Jerusalem? He was a Benjaminite as well. So Sheba then seizes the moment. He blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tent, so Israel. Which, if you're reading carefully, is transparently not what the tribes had just been saying at the end of chapter 19. They were arguing, but they said, we have ten shares in the king. But now the situation had deteriorated. And Sheba's strong rhetoric is able to ride the wave of emotion here at the beginning of chapter 20. And it's a serious statement. The word inheritance, that's the terminology used either for God's gift to Israel, or it could mean, it could refer to Israel herself as God's own people. In other words, Sheba's message was that the people of Israel wouldn't find that which was rightly theirs as God's gift in connection with the son of Jesse. Sheba's calling for Israel to leave David. You see, Absalom's rebellion, David's son Absalom had rebelled and sought to remove David. Sheba's not doing that. 
Sheba's seeking to secede from David. Initially, at least, his rhetoric strikes a chord. We're going to see later that Sheba ends up with little support in the end. But nonetheless, the point here is that this isn't a good development. And David knows that. You can glance down just at verse 6 and you see it. David says to Abishai in verse 6, Now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. I think that's David recognizing that this is a new kind of threat. This rebellion against his kingship threatens to unravel the very kingdom itself, which, if you've ever read ahead in the narrative into 1 Kings, you know is precisely what will happen. Sheba, son of Bichri, was simply before his time. Listen, you don't have to turn there, but listen to 1 Kings 12, verse 16. This is now post-Solomon, Solomon's David's son, who's the next king. Post-Solomon, 1 Kings 12, 16. This is the language that the northern tribes, who are under Jeroboam, use when they decisively break with Rehoboam's rule. I don't know if those names mean anything to you, but just listen to the language. What portion do we have in David, they ask? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Look now to your own house, David. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Only, unlike with Sheba, when the northern tribes hear those words that time in 1 Kings 12, the separation would be permanent. It's rebellion. And you see, it's not just rebellion against David. It's rebellion against the Lord. Sheba is a worthless man. This is not the first time the narrator of Samuel has used that language. Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, if you can possibly go back a year in your mind. They were described as worthless men. Nabal. In 1 Samuel chapter 25, he was a worthless man. Shimei, whom I already mentioned in 2 Samuel chapter 16, Sheba's wrong, you see. The only inheritance they can have will be through a son of Jesse. The Lord himself said it. The king in his promised kingdom would be a son of David. But verse 2 says, all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. And friends, there are many today who see nothing for themselves in the son of David. Who mistakenly think better things can be found by going their own way. rebellion, which is then where we come to our second heading as verse 3 of our chapter focuses our attention on the sadness in David's kingdom. Listen again to verse 3. And David came to his house at 
Jerusalem. Now just imagine, this is the king returning to Jerusalem. But what we get isn't a celebration. And the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. David comes home to discover, if he didn't already know it, what Absalom had done to those ten concubines whom David had left in Jerusalem when he'd fled back in chapter 15. I won't rehearse the details. You can find those in chapter 16, verses 21 and 22, if you don't know them or remember them. The point is that if you've been with us, you know on a deeper level why that horrible moment with Absalom happened. It was part of the Lord's judgment against David for his wickedness. And the narrator doesn't have to say it again here for us to know that David knew that too. That the misery of these women was occasioned by David's sin. The sadness that's there at the end of verse 3 is immense. Yes, David saw that they were adequately provided for in one sense. They wouldn't be homeless or destitute, but he would have nothing more to do with them. They were confined, isolated, alone. As one commentator writes, all their joy and brightness was thus taken out of their lives and personal freedom was denied them. They were doomed for no fault of theirs to the weary lot of captives. And it reminds me a little bit of Tamar who following her violation by Amnon was then to be desolate for the rest of her days. You see, these women now represent something important about David's kingdom, and it's that it was a kingdom that suffered the consequences of sinful men. David himself was responsible for the sadness of these women, as was Absalom, of course. This is supposed to be terrible to see. But we've seen it too. Or we've seen situations analogous to it in our own time. Lives that are ruined by the sins of others. The point is that there's no solution here to this sadness. Because David isn't the kind of king who can wipe away their tears. In one way, there isn't a solution exactly today either, except that we know of the promise that David's greater son gives us. The promise that when that son rules in the new heaven and the new earth, he will, in fact, wipe away every tear from their eyes, for the former things will have passed away. So there's rebellion and there's sadness. And then in verses 4 to 13, we find there's treachery in David's kingdom too. David wants to end Sheba's rebellion. He starts with Amasa, the newly appointed military leader, if you remember from last week. David gives Amasa three days to gather the men of Judah, only for some reason Amasa doesn't come through. We don't know why. Verse 5 simply says Amasa delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed him. 
So as a result, David turns to Abishai, which is interesting because Abishai is Joab's brother and David doesn't turn to Joab. Why not? Well, we're not told that either, but it might not be too hard to imagine a reason or two. Joab, remember, had killed David's son Absalom against David's explicit command, right? David had then installed Amasa instead of Joab as the commander of his army. But you probably know, if you've been with us, that wasn't even the first time that Joab had gone against David's wishes. Much earlier in 2 Samuel, in chapter 3 of 2 Samuel, it was another conflicted time in which Joab had murdered Abner when David wanted to make peace with him. But you see, things are complicated when it comes to Joab. Despite even his murderous acts against David's will, David never sacks him. In fact, tragically, David had decided to use Joab's murderous skill against Uriah. So that by this point in Samuel, we don't expect Joab to take a back seat in the kingdom, and he doesn't. But neither do we quite expect David to do much about it when it happens. And again, he doesn't. Notice the language in verse 7 after David has given orders to Abishai. And verse 7, and there went out after him, that is, after Abishai, Joab's men, and the Cherethites, and the Pelethites, and all the mighty men. And where exactly was Joab? Well, the narrator hasn't told us yet, but we're going to find out, true to character, Joab has no intention of allowing himself to be sidelined. And why did Joab's men go with Abishai rather than Abishai's men? You see, Abishai goes out as the king commander, but it was Joab's division he took. And Joab, we'll soon see, was with them. And it becomes pretty clear that the man in charge was in fact Joab, not Abishai. He and his men meet Amasa in Gibeon, verse 8 tells us, which doesn't bode well if you happen to recall that Gibeon was the site of the early confrontation way back in chapter 2 between the northern tribes and the servants of David who were being led by Joab there as well. That was the origin point of the conflict that would eventually lead to Joab killing Abner, meaning we already know it's coming. Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, verse 8 says, and over it was a belt, which seems like a bit of an oddly specific detail to include, until you realize from a couple of other references around this time period that in that military context, a belt was a status symbol. This means Joab's in charge here. He was wearing a belt with a sword or, or dagger. It could be in, in its sheath fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out, is the way they translate it. This all happens very fast. Joab went forward. The dagger fell out. Probably that's a way of talking about the swift movement by which Joab slides his dagger into his, his left hand, all of which is happening as Joab is still moving forward. And then verse 9, Joab said to Amasa, 
Is it well with you, my brother? It's all by design. Joab takes Amasa by the beard with his right hand, the text says, which again seems like an odd detail to specify the right hand, until you realize that the right hand was the hand with which one did battle. It's empty here, signaling there's no threat. But Joab uses that hand to grasp the beard then, which is part of the greeting kiss ritual that would have been common among kinsmen and friends at the times. Of course Amasa didn't observe the sword that was in Joab's left hand, as verse 10 says it. So all that remains is the stabbing itself. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach, and Amos is dead. It's remarkable how the narrator then just continues, isn't it? Immediately, the end of verse 10, Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. Why? Because now it's Joab who's in charge again. He made sure of that. David had sidelined him, but Joab wouldn't have it. It's chilling how ruthless the whole episode is, and it's not over yet. Verse 11, Joab positions one of his young men there by Amasa. Look at the messaging here. Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. Not too surprising, maybe, that Joab's name is first there, right? He's made sure that if you're with David, you will be following Joab. But there's Amasa wallowing in blood. And the problem is that too many of the men are stopping at that site. Which may be the narrator giving us a clue here, because it was a big deal last week we talked about where David decided to have Amasa now work for him following Absalom's rebellion, right? To been Absalom's commander, David made him his commander. Now, how would these troops, who were after all David's men, how are they going to react when they see this kind of gruesome evidence of Joab's insubordination? Maybe it was just a little bit much, this sight of Amos's bleeding body on the road. Well, if that's the case, then here's the gruesome solution. Just get rid of the visual. Carry Amasa out into the field and throw a garment over him. Problem solved. Verse 13 says, when he was taken out of the highway, all the people went on after Joab. Now look down at verse 22 for a moment. What's the last line of this narrative say? You see it? And Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. (laughs) Evidently without facing any retribution for what he'd done. Brothers and sisters, I have no doubt that Joab believed that if he were able to suppress Sheba's insurrection and to return with the news that the rebellion was obliterated, that David would say nothing of the past. Joab knew David would just silently restore him. That's what I think. And it's treachery. 
David's kingdom is marked by treachery. 2 Samuel 20 isn't so much about Sheba. It's about Joab in the end. And the thing is, I think Joab actually figures in some twisted way he's being loyal to David. It's just that Joab knows he can see things more clearly than David can. Joab figures he knows what the kingdom needs. He can put things right again. So that no matter how much he departed from David's will or David's ways, I think we have to read the narrative to suggest that in Joab's twisted mind, he was actually serving David and his kingdom. And I think David's partly to blame for that. Not only because David had been compromised by using Joab for murderous ends himself, but also because David does nothing to check Joab. We only find out in 1 Kings chapter 2 that David was upset about Joab's murder of Amasa when he says his final instructions to Solomon. I suggest to you that that's too late. David tells Solomon to do something about Joab, but to me that just highlights the point. David did nothing. I mean, look at verse 23 of our chapter. Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel. You see, he got his way again. It won't work that way in the end, friends. Not with Jesus. You're not allowed to be loyal to the king while remaining unsubmissive to the king. Jesus says that in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 and 22. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me you workers of lawlessness. There is such a thing as acknowledging the king's sovereignty and disregarding the king's will. Joab did it. But at the last, such people will have no place in the kingdom. Which brings us finally to verses 14 to 22, where now we see human cleverness, I suggest, marking the kingdom of David. I'll try and be quick on this one. Verse 14 tells us that Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of Beth Machah and all the Bichrites assembled and followed him in. Now, you read that carefully and you realize what it means is that Sheba's rebellion had actually attracted very few followers in the end. He had passed through all the tribes of Israel only to end up in the far north in Abel. Abel is in the far north, several miles west of Dan, He'd gone all over, and in the end, the narrator says the only ones with him are from his own clan, the Bichrites. Sheba is the son of Bichri, remember? It's only the Bichrites who join him. Oh, but there are Joab and his men, and they're ready to take out the whole city if they have to. Even though Sheba's rebellion has essentially fizzled out at that point. There's the end of verse 15, right? And they were battering the wall to throw it down, which is then when we hear the voice, 
The voice of the wise woman, verse 16 says, calling from the city, tell Joab, come here, that I may speak to you. The woman tells Joab about the reputation of her city. She builds things up then to the end of verse 19, where she says, you seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? In other words, the woman is saying, there are faithful, peaceable people in this city. The Lord's people are in this city. Why will you destroy it? And and Joab then answers in verse 20, (laughs) in a way that I I, I think the reader, you the reader, you either have to find his response a moment of profound self-deception or else just a hollow lie to achieve what Joab wants to. Verse 20, Joab answered, Far be it from me, far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not true. (laughs) It absolutely is true. It absolutely is true. That's what he says. That is not true. But a man called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Oh, really? Imagine doing that. I mean, you get the irony, right? What is it that Joab had just done in slaughtering the man David chose to command his army? But he goes on. Give Sheba up alone, and I will withdraw from the city. And it works. The woman has Sheba's head lobbed out over the walls. And you can debate. You may not agree here. You can debate on how to read this part of the chapter. Others do disagree with me in this, but I'm going to call this a display of cleverness. I don't mean it very positively. This woman is called wise here. That sounds pretty good, except that we've encountered this wisdom language a fair bit in Samuel recently, and the fact is, usually it isn't so good. Those who are wise in 2 Samuel include figures like Jonadab in chapter 13. Remember him who plotted with Amnon against Tamar? It includes the woman from Tekoa in chapter 14, whom Joab had used to wedge David into bringing Absalom back to Jerusalem against David's own wishes, as I interpreted that chapter. It even included Ahithophel, whose counsel for Absalom was to undertake the horrors involving David's concubines in Jerusalem. I mean, you can argue that the woman from Abel has acted wisely because here she is saving her city. But we don't have any way to actually evaluate her claims regarding the city. And it it just seems to me that Joab knows how to play into her game here. Does he sense that she's someone who can get the job done? Joab responds by requesting Sheba. And you note there's not a moment's hesitation. Nor it seems the expression of any moral scruple on his part. She just accepts Joab's terms and arranges for Sheba's head to be lobbed over the wall. Is that wisdom? Or is it something else? It certainly worked in the end for Joab. However, you read this, Joab had prevailed again. 
And so back he goes to Jerusalem, to the king, with Sheba's head in tow, I'm sure, and it was a very clever move. No wonder verse 23 reads, Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel. Which means that we've arrived now at the postscript here in verses 23 to 26, and the time is is going gone. I'll just do this one quickly. These verses here, 23 to 26, they're a list of office bearers in David's kingdom, obviously. And I know it's been quite a long time, but you have seen a list like this before in 2 Samuel. So if you're willing at this late point of the sermon, I'd like you to turn back, if you would, to 2 Samuel chapter 8. I would like you to see it. In 2 Samuel 8, verses 15 to 18, I'd like you to see this connection This list here at the end of chapter 20, it is the conclusion. It is the conclusion of the restoration of David's kingdom. So it's hard not to compare it to a very similar list that you get back in chapter 8, which was at the climax of the initial rise of David's kingdom, if you recall. Chapter 7 was the great promise from from Nathan the prophet. Chapter 8 recounted the many victories of David, and the end of chapter 8 is here. And I think we're meant to remember this connection when we come to the end of chapter 20. Look there. Keep your finger maybe in both places if you can. But look at verses 15 to 18 of chapter 8 now. Notice the similarities in the list to the one in our passage. Some of the names are the same. There's Joab. There's Benaiah. There's Jehoshaphat. There's Zadok. They're not all in the same order, but... Some of the positions are the same. There's the secretary, the recorder, priests, military commanders. A couple of the names are different. There is in chapter 20 one very ominous addition of someone named Adoram, who was in charge of the forced labor, which isn't going to be a good thing if you know how First Kings develops in the initial 10 or 12 chapters. But I wonder if by now you've noticed the key difference between these two things, these two lists. Notice in chapter 8 who is actually mentioned first in that list of officials. Do you see it there in verse 15? It's David. Chapter 8, verse 15, I read it near the beginning of the sermon. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Brothers and sisters, where's David? In the summary capstone at the end of chapter 20. He's not there. You see that? David's kingdom has been restored. What's the final message? Well, I think it's where we started this morning in the sermon. This isn't the kingdom we're waiting for. But this isn't the kingdom we're waiting for because this isn't the king we're waiting for. I mean, David now, he's struggling to reign over all Israel, right? And given all that I've just spent this sermon talking about and what we've looked at in the preceding number of weeks... I would suggest to you it's far from clear that justice and equity or justice and righteousness are prevailing in David's kingdom any longer. 
it simply no longer was the remarkable kingdom it had been. The consequences of David's sin had undermined the goodness of his kingdom, and Joab's brutal force can't retrieve that. David's kingdom has become too much like the kingdoms of this world. Friends, this is David's restoration as king at the end of 2 Samuel, but it is a somber moment in the biblical story. So what do we say? Well, I think there's only one way to go here at the end of 2 Samuel, and it's forward. (laughs) Forward through history. It's forward through the Bible because this isn't it. David wasn't wise enough or powerful enough or good enough to establish God's permanent kingdom of goodness and love and justice. Of course he wasn't. He was a deeply flawed sinner like you and me. The hope of the world is in the kingdom of God, brothers and sisters. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We have a long time from the end of 2 Samuel here in the scriptures until we get to Jesus when we could start to understand all of this perhaps more clearly. But is it too simplistic for me to suggest at at this juncture that maybe what becomes obvious by the end of 2 Samuel is that the kingdom of God has to be established and ruled over by God? Because as we said early on in 1 Samuel, there is a king. There always has been a king, and there always will be a king. His name is the Lord. And we who have come to Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, Hebrews chapter 12 tells us. For as Revelation chapter 11, verse 15 says, the day is coming when it will be said, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, son of David. He shall reign forever and ever. And in that kingdom, you won't find rebellion or sadness or treachery or cleverness. No. Rather, as Paul says in Romans chapter 14, the kingdom of God is a matter of righteousness and peace and joy. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.